Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Free agency is starting to wind down. There are a few restricted free agents still in the works, but at the time of this recording, it has been a week and a day since the start of free agency, so we're going to run through all of the deals and see where that leaves the teams that signed them. So today I'm here with Jordan Kligman. Jordan, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing great. Let's get started with the first team in alphabetical order, the Atlanta Hawks. Their biggest free agent was Paul Millsap, who they let walk without even offering him a contract, which I thought was certainly interesting. That leaves them without any of the 2015 Players of the Month during that one month where the Hawks starting five was named the Player of the Month in the Eastern Conference. But they also had a solid contract for Mike Muscala on the books and a solid non-contract after Tim Hardaway Jr. got a massive offer from the Knicks. So let's start with the Muscala deal. What are your thoughts on that? I guess I like it. I think the fans like him. It's not a lot of money. Why not? I like it. Yeah, I think the thing about the Muscala deal is it's really cheap for a backup player in this cast situation. And speaking of really cheap, the exact opposite of really cheap was the Knicks contract offer to Tim Hardaway Jr., which we will talk about later. But for now, I think it makes sense that Atlanta is not matching this offer, just given where that team is right now. But do you have any other thoughts on the Hardaway offer before we get to him in the Knicks section? Uh, I think it's actually good that someone swooped in and offered him a lot of money because it seems like the Hawks were looking to bring him back, and I think it's they still might have overpaid him a little bit what they were offering. This is just crazy money, but I think now maybe they can bottom out and be worse, and that's what they have to do now and get a better pick. Before we move on to the next team, I was a little bit confused as to why the Hawks didn't at least talk to Paul Millsap before letting him walk in free agency. Not that they were going to keep him, but I don't know, just to sort of keep up appearances sake, I feel like you should at least talk to your star player before you let them walk. Yeah, Paul Millsap, I I don't know. I I feel like there's been tension there because I believe last summer they were going to trade Paul Millsap if they could bring Horford back when they were bringing Dwight Howard. So I feel like They haven't really been all that good to him, even though he's been great for them. Moving on to one of the biggest winners of the free agency period, the Boston Celtics managed to convince Gordon Hayward to take their four-year max contract offer over the four-year max contract offer for the Miami Heat and the presumed five-year max contract offer from his old team, the Utah Jazz. I wasn't really all that sold on the... Avery Bradley for Marcus Morris trade, just because I think Bradley is significantly better than Marcus Morris, and also because the Celtics sent out a second round pick in that trade rather than getting one back. But what were your thoughts on the Bradley trade aspect of the Celtics offseason? Well, uh, I believe this is the last year of Avery Bradley's contract. He's likely going to see big money next summer. So I guess it made sense if they had a cut salary and move someone for it to be him. But I just feel like he's probably like a B-plus type of player. Gordon Hayward, I would say, is like an A-minus player. So even though they did well getting Gordon Hayward, I don't think they're going to be contenders after this summer. The trade 
also leaves the Celtics really heavy on the wing, which if you're going to be really heavy somewhere, it makes the most sense to be heavy on the wing just because you can play a lot of those guys together at the same time, just sort of slot them in anywhere two through four. But now they have Hayward along with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Jay Crowder and now Marcus Morris back in the fold. And it's going to be really tough for them to find adequate minutes for all of those guys. Maybe there's another move coming, but for now, that's certainly an interesting roster. Moving on to the Brooklyn Nets. They gave out a four-year, $106 million max offer sheet to Otto Porter, but there are a couple of really interesting facets to that deal that I'm pretty sure the Wizards are quite unhappy about. The deal has a player option on the fourth year, and another interesting twist is apparently 50% of the contract is due up front each year on October 1st. And given that the Wizards are going to be either over the luxury tax or barely under it next season if they offer to match this, certainly was an interesting choice by them to let Porter get the offer from the Nets, but we'll get to that later. All indications say that the Wizards are going to match this offer, but what are your thoughts on the Otto Porter move for the Nets? I like it for them. This is what they have to do to acquire talent. Free agents aren't really lined up to go there, so if they can get a young player, they have to go for it. It's a lot of money, and if you look at Otto Porter's splits, his three-point shooting pre-All-Star was 46.6%, and post-All-Star it was only 341 So you kind of wonder which player is he? I would think he's somewhere in the middle that he'll, he's a good, decent three point shooter. Probably not the, the lightning 46.6 he saw pre all star. It's also worth noting that as with Alan Crabb and Tyler Johnson last summer, the Nets can afford to sign these players far more than their previous teams can afford to match them. And, As we'll get to, the Portland Trailblazers haven't made any moves yet this offseason because they are way over the tax for a team that was the eighth seed last year, in part because of the Alan Crabb contract that they matched Brooklyn's offer on. Also, now that the Pistons have renounced the rights to Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, I think this really opens the door for the Nets to sweep in and sign him because... After the Wizards presumably match this Porter offer sheet, the Nets are basically going to be the only team with near-max space left on the market. Yeah, like, it it makes sense. Just keep chasing those young free agents. Hopefully, they can grab one. If not, you're making uh, their teams pay big-time money to keep them. So, you know, there's no no harm in what what the Nets are doing, and if they land one, it's good for them. Let's move on to the Charlotte Hornets. They acquired Dwight Howard in return for the rights to actually move up a few slots in the draft. And in the process, they also got rid of Miles Plumlee's onerous contract. They acquired $47 million in guaranteed money on the Howard contract and sent out $44 million in guaranteed money with the Plumlee and Bellinelli contracts. So I think that's a huge win for the Hornets. Their only signing so far has been Michael Carter-Williams on a one-year $2.7 million contract. I think that's fine. I mean, there are other backup point guards who got paid a lot more than Carter-Williams, who I don't think are significantly better than him. And given how desperately the Hornets needed someone at backup point guard, it's not that bad of a contract, even though Carter-Williams has 
fallen off a cliff recently. Yeah, I don't think Michael Carter Williams is good, but yeah, it's, it's not nothing. Like who who cares about that money? Kemba wanted him. Got to keep Kemba happy. Why not? I think the the Hornets probably are going to make the playoffs this year. The East is thinning out. So yeah, I, th- I think things are looking up for them. Moving on to the Chicago Bulls. And they were basically guaranteed to be one of the losers of the offseason after that Jimmy Butler trade, which I still don't understand yet. Somehow already looks better in the light of another superstar trade that came later in the offseason. They got Justin Holiday on a solid deal, two years, $9 million. He was decent for the Knicks last season, and for a backup wing who can shoot and create a little bit like Holiday, I think that's actually a pretty solid contract for them. Yeah, Justin Holiday, you know, he he could be all right. I think Felicio was a big contract, probably isn't worth it. The Bulls are going to be bad, but they didn't really do anything that uh, any, like, really, really horrible contract that really handcuffs them in the future. So I guess you can't be too mad, but yeah, they're not going to be good. The thing about the Felicio contract is I'm not sure if any other team would have offered him four years, $32 million on the open market. So the fact that the Bulls did that before he even got a restricted free agency offer is a little bit confusing. But honestly, the Bulls aren't really going to do much with that cap space anyway, so I think that deal is pretty much fine. Let's move on to the Cleveland Cavaliers. They re-signed Kyle Korver on a three-year, $22 million deal with a partial guarantee in the last year, which I believe is actually the biggest contract that Kyle Korver has received in his entire career, and he's 36 years old, so that says a lot. They also got Jose Calderon for the minimum. They also let David Griffin walk because Dan Gilbert didn't want to pay him more than the 30th most money that a general manager is making in the NBA, and... Chauncey Billups declined Dan Gilbert's offer to stay in the big three. Given the gap between the Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors that we saw in the finals this year, this offseason is just a disaster for Cleveland. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, none of these guys they're bringing in are going to move the needle for them. You know, called around minimum money, who cares? Like, he he could do a little bit, maybe. Kyle Korver is up and down with them. I don't know, okay. And then now Jeff Green, who hasn't been good for like three years at least, probably more like seven. Uh, I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, they're definitely not closing the gap. The Warriors are getting some pl- more players that are going to help them. So I think the gap's actually increasing. This This is just bad for the Cavs. I actually am a fan of the Jeff Green signing just because they're paying him nothing and... If he's really bad, they'll nail him to the bench, and if he's decent, then they've gotten some production for a minimum contract, which is probably a lot more than they're going to get for Jose Calderon at his absolute upside, given that Calderon has never really been much of a defensive player. Let's move on to the Dallas Mavericks. They got Dirk to return on a two-year, $10 million deal. I have no idea why Dirk agreed to that deal when he's clearly worth a lot more than that, but that small contract is probably pending a large offer to Nerland's Noel in restricted free agency, and maybe Dallas has some other moves in the works. We'll see, but that Dirk contract is certainly an interesting lowball at this point in his career. Yeah, I guess he doesn't need the money. 
Uh, and he wants to he wants to play there. If, if you don't need the money and you still want you still want to play there, more power to him. It's, it's good for the team. I think Dallas their plan's doing okay. They're they're not gonna they're not gonna be good, but at the same time they're still not tying up any bad contracts. They'll have money next summer, and next summer is gonna be crazy with free agents. Maybe they can land someone big then. I think that's a great point. Actually, that next year's free agent class is objectively a lot better than this year's free agency class, so not tying up long-term money is definitely a win for Dallas. Let's move on to the Denver Nuggets, who did tie up a little bit of long-term money, but it was an excellent decision to do so because they got Paul Millsap on a three-year, $90 million contract with a team option on the third year. So basically, if Millsap declines sharply, then they can easily get out from that contract. And I think Millsap is a perfect fit alongside Nikola Jokic. But what are your thoughts on the Millsap signing? I think it's it's really good for them. I think they could very well be a playoff team. They sh- they were very close this season. I think he fits really well, makes up for some of the defense Jokic lacks. You can also score on offense, stretch the floor a little bit. But the one thing I do worry about is that we've seen when players have left the Hawks, Jeff Teague last year in Indiana wasn't as good, uh, not being in Atlanta, and then Damari Carroll with the Raptors after leaving Atlanta, not very good. Horford in Boston probably uh, wasn't as good last year as he was in Atlanta as like leaving this system. Does it does it hurt their guys or is this just an odd thing? I don't know. The Nuggets also managed to get a second round pick, basically just for the privilege of signing Danilo Gallinari and keeping him on the team for about 30 seconds before trading him to the Clippers. And honestly, you can't really ever complain about getting something for nothing. Yeah, you know, good for them. And that Gallinari contract's pretty big, so yeah, it's not going to hurt them. We'll certainly get to the Gallinari contract once we get to the Clippers, but for now, let's move on to the Detroit Pistons. They signed Langston Galloway to a three-year, $21 million deal on the opening day of free agency. I think they maybe could have gotten a better deal for him if they'd waited a couple days for the market to calm down, but who knows, maybe there was another offer for Galloway pending, and he's a solid 3 and D player. I'm not too upset about that signing for them. Yeah, I don't think Galloway is bad, but at the same time, he's not going to solve any of their problems, I don't think. They really could have, with the same money, really done anything much better, so you can't be mad at it. One thing they did do that it's hard to argue with is the Avery Bradley-Marcus Morris trade. They get Bradley next year for $8 million. They get the chance to extend him this offseason. They get the chance to pay him next offseason. I think Bradley is a similar but significantly better player than Contavious Caldwell-Pope, and Detroit gets him at a low price for this next season and gets a chance to pay him a salary that, in all honesty, might even be less than what Caldwell-Pope is going to get this offseason. Yeah, I think uh, Avery Bradley is a very good two-way player, whereas Pope is just a very good one-way defender. So I think uh, Avery Bradley... Yeah, he's a much better player, and that they were probably going to have to, if they wanted to keep Pope, they were probably going to have to match a really high deal. So this year, they get a free look at Avery Bradley and see see if he's worth big money next year, and I think it's much better for them. 
I think losing Marcus Morris hurts a little bit just because he really played better than the contract that Detroit was giving him. But they have Tobias Harris, who played mostly off the bench last season behind Morris, who was arguably their best player last year. So losing Morris, I don't think, hurts them anywhere near as much as getting Bradley helps them. Let's move on to somehow one of the biggest winners of this offseason, the Golden State Warriors. They got everybody back, pretty much. Resigned Sean Livingston, three years, $24 million. Three years, $48 million for Andre Godala. One year, $3.4 million for Zaza. Two years, $53 million for Kevin Durant, which honestly might be a contender with the Dirk contract for the biggest underpay of the offseason. And then one year, $2.3 million for David West. And this is before we even get to the guys that they got to join the team. This is just the contracts that they managed to resigned to important contributors to their championship team last year. Yeah, Durant, he said he was going to take a discount. I don't think anybody predicted it to be this much, but it, it shows he's committed to the Warriors and good for them. And on the same front of good for them, they got Nick Young for a one-year $5.2 million contract. He was one of the best catch-and-shoot players in the league last season, and they're going to pair him with a bunch of other incredible catch-and-shoot players. Young's defense is a question mark, but for this contract, and given how much he's going to benefit from the space these guys give him after having not exactly all that much space on the Lakers last year, I think this is a huge get for the Warriors. I think in, in a vacuum, it's a great contract for Nick Young, but I don't know how he's going to fit with this team because... You saw Draymond get into it with uh, Durant when Durant was taking some shots and they weren't going down. With with Nick Young, the confidence he has and just to just let it fly, I feel like if he's missing shots, uh, Draymond's going to give it to him and that could start some tensions. But if they can hold that in check and he can just, you know, pick his spots well, it will be good. But I, I don't know if that's going to happen. Interestingly enough, the other non-warrior that they signed this season. They signed to a much smaller deal, but as I wrote about earlier this week, I think he will actually prove to be a better addition than Nick Young, and that's Omri Caspi, who they got for one year and $2.1 million. Caspi is a much better defender than Nick Young. He's two inches taller, so he's more of a combo 3-4 rather than a combo 2-3, which is something that the Warriors need more of, I think. Caspi's skill set, that is, not Nick Young's. And Caspi is also one of the league's best shooters from deep three-point range, from 28 feet plus. And those extra five feet of space from beyond the three-point line will help to open up what is already arguably the most open space offense in the history of the NBA. So I am a huge fan of the Caspi signing for them. Yeah, I like Caspi. I think adding this depth is really going to help them during the regular season if they go through injuries or want to rest guys. But I think in the, in the playoffs, it's going to be their core winning games, and the depth signings won't play a major factor in those games. But I think uh, it was important to get guys during the regular season because like, if Durant gets injured again, they'll they'll have some help, or if they just want to rest guys, maintain them, uh, uh, let them play a little fewer minutes so they're fresh for the playoffs, they can do that too. So I think that it's important, but I think come playoff time, these guys probably won't be major factors. Moving on to 
one of, if not the biggest contender to the Warriors in the Western Conference, the Houston Rockets. So they acquired a bunch of non-guaranteed contracts to make the Chris Paul trade work. Chris Paul is now a member of the Rockets, which still is a little bit shocking, honestly, to think about. They still have a bunch of other non-guaranteed contracts that they could potentially ship out in a Carmelo Anthony trade. There have been rumors swirling about Carmelo to Houston basically since Phil Jackson was deposed in New York and Carmelo said he would be willing to waive his no-trade clause to go to Houston. But on top of the Chris Paul trade, they got P.J. Tucker on a four-year, $32 million contract, despite him actually getting a bigger offer from Toronto, reportedly, with a three-year, $33 million deal in the works. You saw a lot of PJ in Toronto down the stretch of last season. What are your thoughts on this contract? Um, I think it's great for great for Houston. I think PJ Tucker. People point out like only six points per game, and oh, doesn't feel like these stats suck. Who is he? But he he's a great one-on-one defender. He can get get in on anybody. Really irritate them. So they lost Patrick Beverly when they traded for Chris Paul. He was good at irritating guys and really getting under their skin. I think P.J. Tucker does a lot of the same things, so they get that now on the wing. I, I think he's going to be great for them, and I- I'm still a little little bit bitter that uh, he's gone from the Raptors. The Rockets also got Nene to resign. They originally tried to sign him for a four-year, $15 million contract, and irony of all ironies, after getting Chris Paul, the guy who wrote the over 38 rule into the books as the president of the Players Union, Houston signed an A to a contract that violated this over 38 rule. So they revised the contract to three years, 11 million, which is basically the same as the first three years of that four-year deal that he got. I'm just really confused as to how the Houston Rockets of all teams was the team to mess up this over 38 rule. But Nene was a great contributor for them, and he will probably get more minutes than he did last year as a backup big after Montrez Harrell went to the Clippers in that Chris Paul trade. Yeah, I was surprised that uh, what Nene was able to do for the Rockets last year, considering he was 34 and kind of looked like he didn't have much in the tank, but he, he delivered for them. He, he gave them a little bit, and I, I think this contract's good for them. I think after trading some of their depth, keeping him is going to be important. Moving on to the Indiana Pacers, we discussed the Paul George trade in the last podcast, so I won't go back into depth on it here. But in the meantime, they signed Darren Collison to a two-year, $20 million deal. He was a decent starting point guard for the Kings last year. I think two years, $20 million is right about the upper border of what I would be comfortable in terms of paying Darren Collison. But what are your thoughts on Darren returning to the Indiana Pacers? I tend to like Darren Collison a little bit more than others. Uh, I guess they just need like NBA players on their team now, but like... If they're bottoming out, I guess he doesn't really impact, really impede them from doing that. And at the same time, you know, he, he's an NBA player that can come in and play. So I, I guess it's okay. There are other big signings so far. Boyan Bogdanovich on a two-year, $21 million deal. I've watched a lot of Boyan over the last few years with the Nets. And my biggest thought on this contract is that he was really valuable to the Wizards 
last season, basically right up until the playoffs as an all offense, no defense bench piece. But I think this is actually a really solid signing for Indiana for one reason and one reason only. And that is that Miles Turner is a lot better at cleaning up defensive mistakes than Martian Gortat and recovering from injury Jan Mahimi. Yeah, again, like he's another guy who can play. The way I see this is I think that when a, a when teams are looking for shooters at the deadline, they might be able to move him and get a, get a pick back. So I think they can like be able to profit down the line with this signing. But I don't know how either of these guys really help them with their plan or what they're doing. Doesn't really hurt what they're doing, but eh, I don't know. Honestly, the main value I see in these deals is that it will help Indiana to at least be not atrocious, which given how much we've heard out of the Pacers that they can't tank, they can't tank in this market, it won't work if they tank, they'll at least be like a 30-ish win team next year. They won't be one of the worst teams in the league. And maybe that's a lot more important to the Pacers than we're giving them credit for. But let's move on to a team that certainly did not stand pat during the free agency period so far. The Los Angeles Clippers got Blake Griffin to re-sign for five years, $173 million after the Chris Paul trade. They also got Danilo Gallinari for that three-year, $65 million deal that we mentioned earlier. And they brought Milos Teodosic over from Europe with a two-year, $12.3 million contract. I'm actually a pretty big fan of what the Clippers have done this offseason. It's a lot of high-risk, high-reward maneuvers in that Blake and Danilo have pretty long injury histories, although a lot of Blake's injuries have been less sort of wear-and-tear injuries that might continue and more sort of unlucky breaks. I don't think that breaking your hand by punching the trainer in the face is a recurring injury, nor do I think a staph infection is a recurring injury, and... Although Blake did miss his whole rookie year, he then proceeded to miss a total of four games over the next four years of his career. So I think the Blake injury concerns are certainly there, but a little bit overblown. I think they also did an awesome job for getting quite a haul back from Chris Paul, despite the fact that Chris easily could have left in free agency. I think the Clippers package for Chris Paul is a lot better than what either the Pacers got for Paul George or what the Bulls got from Jimmy Butler. And those guys were locked in for at least one more year, whereas Chris Paul wasn't. Yeah, I I really like what they're doing with the exception of Gallinari. He's going to be getting over $20 million a year, which is crazy. And I believe in that sign trade, they had to give up the first round pick they got from Houston from the Chris Paul trade. So it's like, it seems like a lose-lose. Gallinari... You know, he, he's. I think he's a decent three-point shooter, not really a good field goal shooter, and he's high volume and not, not a very good defender. But he's a good role player, but I just think at that money, uh, you're expecting a lot out of him. I think Gallinari actually tends to be really underrated as a defender. I'm not saying he's a great defender, but I think he's at least an average defender, and Honestly, if you have Patrick Beverly and DeAndre Jordan on your team, you don't need a guy to be spectacular defensively on the wing. You just sort of need him to do his job. I think also Gallinari's field goal numbers overall are hurt by the fact that he takes a lot of threes. But I think the biggest concern with that is just while some of Blake's injury concerns are non-repeated injuries, a lot of Gallinari's injuries are recurring and the kind of things that are probably going to hamper him going forward. But 
moving on very quickly to the Los Angeles Lakers, they've chased a couple of names, including Dion Waiters, but so far the only deal they've signed is inking Lonzo Ball to his rookie contract, so not really much on the Lakers front other than the D'Angelo, Russell, and Timofey Mozgov trade. I think Brooke Lopez is a great fit for them, and I think Lakers fans are going to fall in love with him very early, and I think Brooke might actually get an offer from the Lakers next offseason, which at the moment I don't think people are expecting at all. That's interesting. I think it's very possible as well. I think as long as the Lakers don't hand out any bad contracts, I think that's good for them. That's a win over what they've done in previous seasons. Just let the young guys grow and take a shot at Paul George next summer. Moving on to the Memphis Grizzlies. In what has been one of the more entertaining subplots to this offseason, the Grizzlies and Kings have basically just shipped a bunch of their free agents back and forth, but the Grizzlies got Ben McElmore to a two-year $10.7 million deal. I think that's an interesting flyer, especially since Memphis has, under the David Fisdale era, gone from a team that avoided three-pointers like the plague to a team that was basically around league average in attempts and accuracy, and Macklemore's got a solid shot from deep, and he doesn't have great feel, and he might have one of the worst handles of any guard in the league, but I think that's a solid flyer. Even more in the solid flyer range, Tyreek Evans for one year, 3.3 million. Tyreek might be the second best drive and kick player on the Grizzlies immediately. The only issue with Tyreek is that he makes Gallinari's injury concerns look like DeAndre Jordan injury concerns. But for one year and 3.3 million, I think that's a really solid flyer for Memphis to take. Yeah, I think Memphis is doing well. I've always liked Ben McLemore. I, I really think that uh, Sacramento probably held them back. They weren't good at developing young players. So I'm I'm hoping that he can uh, do a little more here in Memphis and show show he's the player we all thought he was when he was drafted. Um, I think with Tyreek Evans, as you mentioned, the injuries, when he's healthy, he's able to contribute and be decent. And I think he can be that. So I think that's good. Moving on to a team that went a little beyond the flyer range on some of their contracts. The Miami Heat, basically immediately after Gordon Hayward announced that he would be signing with the Boston Celtics, the Heat doled out a truly remarkable amount of money to Deion Waiters, a four-year, $52 million contract, James Johnson, a four-year, $60 million contract, and a four-year, $50 million contract to Kelly Olenek. And given how Pat Riley usually builds his teams, I was honestly shocked that he committed this much long-term money when the Heat could have been a serious contender for a bunch of big-name free agents next offseason. But what are your thoughts on what Miami's done so far? Yeah, it's very interesting. I think Dion Waiters was very good for them last season in like 25, 30 games. But the rest of his career has been a bit of a disappointment. So if you think that that's who he is, that he is that good player that he in the 25, 30 games, I think it's a good contract for him. But I think that's a little naive to think that way. James Johnson, I feel like he's always had all the talent in the world. It's just been character issues with him and him clashing with coaches. But that that's still a risk that that uh, character issues could come up now that he's paid. 
Uh, and then with Olenek, I've never really liked him that much, so I, I think this was this was a big overpay for him. But yeah, load up with with role players and see what happens. Probably make the playoffs in the East, I guess. I think I would have disliked the Waiters and James Johnson contract a lot more if they weren't in Miami, just because the Miami Heat training staff has helped both of them turn their careers around. James Johnson lost 30 pounds last year in Miami, which sounds like one of those things where you hear that player X added four inches to his vertical and gained 20 pounds of muscle, but James Johnson actually somehow lost 30 pounds during his year in Miami, and I think both of those guys will play a lot better on those deals for the Heat than they would have if, say, the Knicks paid Dion that kind of contract. Moving on to the Milwaukee Bucks, they re-signed restricted free agent Tony Snell to a four-year, $46 million deal, and... Snell was probably worth that kind of contract last season. He wasn't ever worth that kind of contract at any point during his time in Chicago. And I think the biggest reason that I'm out on this Snell contract is because a lot of Snell's success last year came when he was starting as a fill-in for Chris Middleton. And now that Chris Middleton is back, I'm not sure if Snell will get enough playing time to live up to that contract. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Tony Snell is worth this money when he's playing the Raptors. He always kills the Raptors. But yeah, I agree. He's probably not a very good player. And I think what we saw last year from him, that's just not repeatable. He he was great, great in the playoffs against the Raptors. But uh, this contract's not going to age well. Moving on to the Minnesota Timberwolves, who may have improved their team more this offseason than anyone else. They apparently offered Chris Dunn and Zach Levine for Jimmy Butler last year, and then they offered basically the same deal except with a pick swap going from 7 to 16 with the Bulls, despite Chris Dunn failing miserably on the offensive end during his rookie year, and Zach Levine, a player who relies heavily on his athleticism, tearing his ACL. So huge win for the Timberwolves, and then they inked Jeff Teague to a three-year $57 million contract, and Taj Gibson to a two-year $28 million deal. So what are your thoughts on what Tom Thibodeau has done with the Timberwolves this offseason? Uh, well, I think the genius thing here was flipping Rubio for a first-round pick and then being able to replace Rubio with Teague. So it's like you get a first-round pick and you don't really drop off that much at point guard. I think that's that's a big win. I think Gibson... Is always doing good things, so I think he's going to help them. Yeah, they're going to challenge for a playoff spot. I think they did very well for themselves. I've seen a lot of people complaining about how the Gibson signing and the Teague move will leave the Timberwolves without much spacing on the offensive end just because they don't have any real three-point shooters. And my response to that is, look at what Jimmy Butler did last season with a Chicago Bulls team that had by far the worst spacing in the league. I think the Timberwolves will be fine on offense. I think they're going to make a major leap on defense. The Rubio trade, I wouldn't have been in on if they hadn't managed to get Jeff Teague to replace him, just because Rubio is so good at everything except shooting. But given the rest of the Timberwolves roster, they needed a point guard who's at least average as a shooter, and Jeff Teague is certainly that. 
Moving on to the New Orleans Pelicans, who signed one of the other big-name point guards in this free agency class. They got Drew Holiday to agree to return on a five-year, $126 million deal. And similar to my thoughts on the Dion Waiters and James Johnson contract, I would have been really out on this deal if it was anyone besides the Pelicans, but they have one more year of DeMarcus Cousins and three more years of Anthony Davis, and they need to be good this year if they have any chance of retaining those guys long-term, and they had no way to replace Drew Holiday, so they kind of needed to overpay him just because they had absolutely no recourse at all at the point guard position if he left, so... I want to see what Alvin Gentry can do once he has a training camp with both of those all-star big men to try and make an offense work better than it did down the stretch of last season. Yeah, I think in a vacuum, the contract probably isn't good, but they needed to bring him back. Um, I think similar to Mike Conley last year, who I believe last summer was the highest paid player. The Grizzlies had to bring him back. Uh, So I think it's just the same thing. You know, people are going to relax. Uh, and see that, you know, he's still a good point guard, Holiday, and they couldn't do better. With, but I think the real issue is with them is they're going to have to find help on the wing, and I don't know if they can do it. All right, here we are, the New York Knicks. They finally got rid of Phil Jackson after he spent three years trying to cram the triangle offense into a team that was one of the worst fits in the league for the triangle offense. He tried to make Kristaps Porzingis, who should be a pick-and-pop center, into a triangle power forward, but things looked like they were going to be all right for the Knicks. They dumped Phil Jackson. Interestingly, they dumped him after the draft when Phil picked a triangle point guard in Frank Nilakina over a much higher upside player in Dennis Smith or Malik Monk, both of whom Knicks fans would have loved instantly. But things look quiet for the Knicks, which is exactly what they needed. And then they offered Tim Hardaway Jr. a four-year, $71 million contract. And here's where things get awful for the Knicks. They had Tim Hardaway. Then they traded him for Jaron Grant. And then they used Jaron Grant to acquire Derrick Rose last offseason... And Derrick Rose's cap hold has to be cut from the Knicks books so that they can offer this massive contract to Tim Hardaway Jr., who, again, they already had on their roster. This is possibly the Knicksiest thing that we've seen all offseason, and that includes Phil Jackson pretending to shop Kristaps Porzingis. Yeah, they go into every offseason thinking... What is the worst thing we can possibly do? And then they execute on it. So bravo to that. Yeah, I I don't know what they're thinking with this. They should be thinking, how do we build around Porzingis not bringing an overpaid role player like Tim Hardaway Jr.? I think um, if Tim Hardaway Jr., you know, the plan was for him to come off the bench, you know, pay him like 10, maybe 12 million, even that would have been high a year. I think that would have been okay. But then maybe the Hawks match. But like, this is just, what are you doing? You, you overpay Noah last year when he looked clearly done. And that, I, 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 I don't know what's going on here. I, I was having an argument with someone on Twitter. They were asking me if I would trade uh, Damari Carroll for Tim Hardaway Jr. And I said, no, you know, Carroll's owed, thir- I believe, $30 million over the next two years. This is $71 million over four years. 
You know, the Raptors are going to be done with Carroll in two years. Knicks are not going to be done with Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, till four years. They're not going to be able to move this contract. This is horrible for them. I think this contract will lead to a lot of undeserved Tim Hardaway Jr. hate because he really showed a lot last year in Atlanta and he improved a lot over the course of that year. And he's a decent player who for the next four years is going to be one of the laughing stocks of the league. And who knows, honestly, given how much he developed last year, he might turn into a decent player, but the Hawks were apparently per Kevin Arnovitz looking to match a deal for Hardaway at around 45 million for four years. And the Knicks almost doubled that offer to him, which is just absurd. So I would feel bad for Tim Hardaway Jr. because he's going to get a lot of undeserved hate after this contract goes through. But then again, he's getting paid nearly $18 million a year, so it's kind of hard to feel bad for him. So let's move on from probably the worst offseason so far to arguably the best offseason so far. The Oklahoma City Thunder dumped Victor Oladipo's overpay of a contract and got Paul George in return. And then after that, they got Patrick Patterson for a three-year, $16.4 million deal. They got Andre Roberson back in town for a three-year, $30 million deal. And they just recently got Ray Felton for a minimum contract as a backup point guard who is miles better than Samaje Kristen. So I am a huge fan of what Oklahoma City did this offseason. Yeah, uh, Patrick Patterson, I believe it was $5.5 million a year. Uh, would have loved for him to come back. The Raptors at that price didn't do an exit interview with us. Uh, seemed like there was tension there. Wanted to go somewhere else. Uh, and now, you know, I think he's on a better team. And playing with Paul George, Russell Westbrook, that's going to be fun for him. Robertson, he's a very good defender. Re- very reasonable contract for him. Uh, as you mentioned, Raymond Felton, he uh, was pretty good backup point guard uh, for the Clippers last year. And I think he's going to be a good, solid backup point guard for the Thunder. Moving on to the Orlando Magic, they've only made one deal so far, which was Shelvin Mack for two years and $12 million. This isn't a terrible contract, but given that Ray Felton got a minimum deal and Michael Carter-Williams got half this money per year on half the length of contract, I think the Magic really could have done a lot better in their exploration of the backup point guard market. Yeah, there was a time when I thought Mac was like this sneaky good point guard that people didn't really know about. But then you watch more of him, like, eh, he's not very good. Considering this is their big splash move of free agency, I don't like it. Like, what does this do for them? They have a chance to make the playoffs. I would have taken a shot somewhere else. Someone who gives them more upside. Probably a better shooter. They need shooting. I don't. I don't know what they're doing. They have a new front office now. Maybe they didn't want to take any big, big gambles and just look what they have this season and figure out what they want to do going forward after that. I I don't know. Mac is already 27 and he shot 30% from three-point range last year. So I'm with you. I just don't see the upside in this move for the Magic. But speaking of upside, the Philadelphia 76ers. And they had a really interesting offseason. They signed two massive one-year contracts. They signed Amir Johnson for a one-year, $11 million deal, which I'm going to let you talk about that one as a Raptors fan because I don't want to get hated for any sort of slander. But J.J. Redick on a one-year, $23 million deal is, I think, exactly what the Sixers should have done because 
J.J. Redick, alongside the rest of that young core, is nearly a perfect fit. He's going to create all the spacing that Ben Simmons can't create from behind the arc, and he's just going to get a lot of chances to hoist up threes, and he's probably one of the five best shooters in the league, so that's going to be great for him. Uh, Yeah, uh, on Amir Johnson, we'll start there. I- I've always liked him. He's a very good character guy. I think I believe the last two seasons in Boston, he made a total of twenty four million, which is ridiculous. He d- he doesn't have much left in the tank. I feel like this eleven million dollars was kind of a waste because I don't I don't see how he's gonna really play uh, on the Sixers team. They they're loaded with big guys. They had to trade Noel this season for pretty much nothing. Maybe just having his good presence, good character around the team is good, but. I don't know. I feel like they could have done more with with that eleven million with Redick. Uh, I agree with you. I really like. I believe last summer I was thinking, oh, he's gonna he's gonna receive some crazy four year eighty million dollar deal. Some crappy team will overpay for him. But I think this is this is perfect for for JJ. This is perfect for the Sixers. Sixers def, uh, desperately needed shooting, and you know twenty three million dollars one year deal. They'll have that cap space next year. Um, so. I think it's great great for them in the short term, great for them in the long term. They still have the flexibility. Yeah, good stuff for them. The Sixers also brought Furkan Korkmaz over from Europe. He's a decent athlete, a lot of upside, isn't really a fully developed player yet, but he's another young piece to add to their already solid group of young players. Moving on, the Phoenix Suns have only agreed to one deal so far this offseason. That was bringing in... Mike James from your league, so not the big three Mike James that scored 20 points per game one season in one of the biggest outlier seasons in the history of the NBA. James is basically just a score first type of point guard who has had a solid couple of years over in Europe, and he had a huge dunk in Summer League yesterday against the Kings, so not a bad contract. The terms haven't come out yet, but it's probably pretty close to a minimum deal, and there's no reason for them not to take a flyer on him. I don't know anything about him. Uh, It's a low minimum deal. Uh, Sure, why not? Um, Not gonna hurt them. I got nothing else. Speaking of nothing, the Portland Trailblazers have not signed a contract this offseason because I think they actually have the second highest payroll in basketball next season, just barely behind the Cleveland Cavaliers. Interesting, interesting situation in Portland, but they haven't signed anybody and they're probably not going to sign anybody other than maybe a couple of minimum deals just because they don't have the room. But from absolutely no room at all to the biggest cap space of any team heading into this offseason, the Sacramento Kings. They got George Hill for a three-year, $57 million deal with a partial guarantee in the third year. I think that's an excellent contract for Hill, who has been one of the more underrated point guards in the league for quite a while now. They got Zach Randall for a two-year, $24 million deal that I'm not as much of a fan of just in terms of pure monetary value and in terms of him taking away minutes from the young bigs, but I love Zach Randolph and I'm going to love seeing him in Sacramento. But the one player that I'm going to love seeing in Sacramento even more than Zach Randolph is someone who maybe you're not as much of a fan of given that you're from Toronto, but Vince Sanity, Vince Carter is going to be in Sacramento. They desperately needed a small forward. Vince still has enough shooting touch 
and somehow still enough athletic ability to be a decent stopgap small forward. He's also going to be a great mentor for fellow Tar Heel Justin Jackson, who looked great in Summer League yesterday. So this is a pretty solid offseason for the Kings, honestly. And if anyone hasn't been aware of the change in the Sacramento front office this offseason, they got Scott Perry to help Vladi Divac in the GM seat, and suddenly the Kings are making a lot of moves that a lot of people like. So honestly, one of the biggest signings of this offseason might be Scott Perry to Sacramento. Yeah, um, not upset with anything they did. I love George Hill. I love that deal for him. I think he's one of the steals of this summer. I think people really underrate what he does defensively. I remember two years ago, he shut down Kyle Lowry and ran one of the playoffs. Um, and he provides offensively too. He's a very good two-way player. He's getting up there in age, but he's very good. Uh, Zach Randolph, I don't know how good he's going to be outside of Memphis. I feel like Memphis kind of saved him and, you know, put him in a perfect role next to Marcus Hull, but he's back with the a, a same coach he previously had in Memphis. Uh, so, so maybe it will work. I don't know. Vince Carter, you know, $8 million one year. It's not a bad deal. If he's their starting small forward, it's kind of uh, not very good, but eh, it, do- it doesn't cost them very much. Yeah, it's, it's it's good. They they did good stuff. No Vince Carter slander on this podcast. Let's move on to the San Antonio Spurs. They got former King Rudy Gay on a surprisingly cheap two-year, $17 million contract. And honestly, the fact that that was all that Rudy Gay got makes me a little nervous about his Achilles situation. He's still recovering from that injury that he sustained with the Kings. But I'm a little bit surprised that the Spurs are the team that got Rudy Gay, just because the two positions that they have basically locked down in the starting lineup are small forward with Kawhi Leonard and power forward with, for the time being, LaMarcus Aldridge. And those are the two positions that Rudy Gay can play. So maybe he's going to be a super sub for them, which I think would be really interesting in terms of providing some offense for the San Antonio bench. And honestly, that kind of deal for Rudy Gay, he declined a $14 million option for next year. So he almost got that amount of money over two years instead of one year. So I think that's a solid move for the Spurs. They also got Patty Mills to come back for a four-year, $50 million contract, which is interesting, I think, because... Given what George Hill got from the Kings, they could have easily brought George Hill back to San Antonio, and I think he would have really helped their point guard situation, given that we don't know how long Tony Parker is going to be out. But honestly, bringing back Patty Mills is a solid move for them. He was a huge part of their bench last season, and the Spurs always keep their guys around, so not bad on that front. But what are your thoughts on the Spurs moves this offseason? Yeah, Rudy Gay... Haven't been really a big fan of him, uh, but a steal of a deal for them. Maybe the the recovery time is a bit longer than people think. Uh, but yeah, if he can be their sixth man, I think he's probably one of the best six men in the league, if not the best. So I think that's great for them. Uh, I agree with you with, with George Hill. I really thought he was coming back to San Antonio because I remember when uh, he was with San Antonio, Popovich referred to him as his favorite player. So I felt like there was something there. Bring back Patty Mills instead. Not a big fan of, but, you know, 
it's a bit rich contract for me, but I feel like the Spurs they'll they'll make it work. He was good for them. Uh, you can't be you can't be upset with what they did. All right, moving on to your team, the Toronto Raptors. They re-signed two key players. So given that they're your team, I'm just gonna let you go on this one. Oh boy. Um. Yeah, I think it's very interesting with what the Raptors did. I think they had to bring back Kyle Lowry. It's similar to the Drew Holiday thing. They couldn't replace him if they renounced all their free agents. They would have only had $19 million to fill three roster spots. Couldn't couldn't really do anything good with that. So they had to bring back Kyle Lowry. Only three-year deal. I guess it's a lot of money, uh, like thir- uh, 33.3 with incentives a year, compared to you know a lot of guys seemingly getting less money this year. But I really like it. I think he's got... Probably two, at least two prime years left in him. I think the key with him is keeping him healthy this season. So I don't think Dwayne Casey can play him 37 minutes a game this year again that he's done in the previous two seasons. He's breaking down every year uh, post-All-Star heading into the playoffs. Play him, play him 25, 30 minutes. Lose, lose a couple more games. It's the Eastern Conference. It's not as good. Keep him fresh for the playoffs. Let Lowry... Do his damage in the playoffs, healthy and fresh. Um, and then moving on to Abaka, I think it was clear all along that Abaka was coming back. Yeah, I think it leaked out a, about a month ago that uh, there was mutual interest uh, and he was coming back. And with Masai, I believe when he traded for Abaka, he mentioned that he wasn't just trading to rent him; he was trading for his bird rights. So there was intent on bringing him back. Then I like Abaka. Uh, he's obviously no longer in his prime. But the thing with him is I think there's been a lot of talk. The R- Raptors and Masai have said, you know, maybe he's better suited to playing center. The Raptors are loaded at center. He's going to have to play power forward. And with the Raptors uh, losing Patrick Patterson, that e- that makes him uh, need to play power forward even more. I think there's a hole behind him at power forward. Whether Pascal Siakam can fill it, I don't know. But I think the Raptors just need to go into the playoffs fresh and healthy. And this team probably isn't quite as good as last year losing Tucker and Patterson. But the East has gotten worse. So just be healthy for the playoffs. I'll be happy. With the East kind of collapsing a bit this offseason... And the fact that both of these are three-year contracts rather than the full five-year max for Lowry or a longer-term deal for Ibaka. I'm actually a pretty big fan of these moves, especially since after this next season, I would be shocked if LeBron James is still in Cleveland just because of how ridiculously incompetent and self-absorbed and useless and awful Dan Gilbert is in every possible sense of the word. Anyway, moving on to the Utah Jazz... They lost Gordon Hayward in free agency, which is a huge blow to their chances, but they picked up Ricky Rubio for not all that much, and they got Joe Ingles to return on a four-year, $52 million deal. That's probably a little bit of an overpay, but Ingles was really solid for them in the playoffs, especially on the defensive end, where he just completely shut J.J. Redick out of the picture which is truly remarkable given how spectacular J.J. normally is from behind the three-point line. So I'm pretty happy with what the Jazz did in terms of sort of shifting to rebuilding around Rudy Gobert. And losing Hayward will hurt, clearly, but I think they did 
pretty much the best they could, given that they end up losing Hayward to the Celtics. Yeah, I think I think they they kind of weren't in control of how free agency was gonna play out with Hayward. Uh, bring back Joe Ingles, I think is really good for them. I think he's underrated around the league. Um, he's a very good two-way role player, and I think losing Hayward, yeah, they lost a big talent there. It's gonna hurt, but they have Rodney Hood. Um, and they drafted Donovan Mitchell, who I think is good. So I think they're still a playoff team. I think I think they're gonna be fine. They won't be as good as they were with Gordon Hayward. But uh, you know, a lot of teams have done worse than them. So they're 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 doing well. I forgot to mention Donovan Mitchell. He's looked incredible so far. Granted, it's summer league, so don't draw any major conclusions. But certainly, if you're gonna take away any winners from the first few days of summer league. You have to put Donovan Mitchell right up there near the top. All right, here we are, the last team, the Washington Wizards. They got Jody Meeks on a two-year, $7 million contract. If he's healthy, he will help them just as a much cheaper version of Boyan Bogdanovich, namely a guy who's going to come off the bench and shoot a lot of threes. Meeks has really struggled with his health over the past few years, so maybe that's not going to happen. But for $3.5 million a year for two years... Not really that much of a problem. The one thing that I do object to about their offseason is that they didn't just sign Otto Porter rather than letting him walk into restricted free agency because everyone in the league knew that Otto Porter was going to get a max contract offer from somewhere. He ended up getting two of them. The Kings gave him one before they pulled his offer to sign Hill and Randolph. And then the Nets gave him the really difficult offer sheet that we mentioned earlier in their section, but the Wizards knew that this four-year $106 million deal was coming. I don't see why they didn't just offer him that and keep him off their restricted market because all this offer sheet does is hurt them. I think they're in a tough situation. I really don't like Jody Meeks. I feel like in the past two years, I thought his career has been over twice with the injuries, and somehow he's still... Uh, getting another contract. So that's a little surprising to me. Otto Porter. I don't know if they can match on Otto Porter because John Wall has not ex- accepted his uh, massive extension they offered him. And if they give Otto Porter all this money and then John Wall ends up leaving in a couple of years, I don't know what they do with the, those big contracts on Beal and Porter. I think they're in a tough spot. I, I don't know what they do. Otto Porter was really good for them. They also have no way at all of replacing him. So losing him is basically just saying, all right, we're going to sign away or we're going to throw away one of our best young pieces and there's really no way we can get anything in return. And the Yon Mahimi contract looked questionable last offseason and Granted, they couldn't have anticipated the degree to which he was injured last season, but that contract looks really, really bad right now, and it's just going to make this Porter offer sheet look even more painful. Yeah, they're in a tough spot. I guess they're, if they bring if they bring Porter back, they're still a very good team in the East, you know, along with probably in the same grouping of the, as the Raptors and Celtics. I just don't know what's going to happen long term with them. All right, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here? I think teams have been really smart on the whole uh, this offseason. You do have a few really baffling moves, like the Knicks with Tim Hardaway Jr., but 
I feel like the the Thunder and the Rockets, like, doing moves I couldn't even dream up, you know, getting Chris Paul, the Rockets, I wouldn't even thought that was a possibility. I didn't think the Thunder had the assets to get Paul George, but, like, wow. Teams are smartening up. Teams, and a lot of teams I can see have a a, a plan in place what they want to do, whether it's go forward and compete or, you know, tank, because they see they can't contend and compete. So I think Really, the Warriors get all the credit for this, that they're pushing teams up on their plans and forcing them to make a decision on things a lot quicker and be a lot smarter. So I think you got to credit the Warriors. I think this offseason was going to be filled with a lot better deals in general, just because last offseason looked so bad. But teams definitely have been smarter this offseason so far, and that's good to see. Yeah. All right. Well, he is Jordan Kligman. You can find him on Twitter at 416basketball. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. You can find both of our work on the hashtag basketball website. And if you want a little bit more of the condensed summary of the contracts that we discussed today, the hashtag basketball website has a free agency tracker that is updated semi-constantly with all the new signings. It's a really great tool to sort of get a condensed view of what's happened so far this offseason. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com. That's N-I-C-K-A-J dot N-B-A at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out if you have any suggestions for future podcasts as well. I'd love to hear from all of you. And as always, thanks so much for listening.